It's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and tonight I'm with my always co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm pretty good, Billy, and I'm really interested to dig into this uh, guest. This sounds like uh, going to be a great show. Well, you know, it's not our, uh, you know, a particular uh, crime story, but I've had Jonathan Apriel on before. Aprelier, I said it. Before I said it right now, I say it wrong on the show. I've had him on before, and he's, he lives a fascinating life. It's unbelievable. He uh, he was actually born in Paris, but he's he, he lived uh, in New York, and he he's he's a what's known as a war photographer or war journalist, whatever you'd like to know. But he's been all over the world, and I believe in 2013 he was taken hostage by Syrian uh, warlords for over three months, and he was beaten and tortured. And he survived that, yet he still has the kionis, as they say, uh, to go back and do what he loves to do. Jonathan Apriel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, it was an easy when you called me up and said, hey, I'm due to come on again. I said, you got it, brother. Right? Come on. on. And you're doing something different right now, too. You were, you were in Panama, and you were photographing uh, basically – illegal immigrants coming in through Panama into South America and up in through Mexico and um, eventually into the United States. But most of the people that you were filming or, or photographing were Haitians. Is that correct? Yeah. So there, there are different routes uh, currently that um, stretch from the Caribbean or South America through Central America, Mexico, and finally on to the U.S., um, for example, in this picture that uh, that's being shown, there are you're right, all of them are from Haiti, and the way it works is that they buy a one-way ticket to Ecuador, and the reason why it's, they choose Ecuador is that they don't need a visa. Actually, no one needs a visa to go there, and you don't have to buy a round-trip ticket. Usually, most of these countries require that, so they buy one way and they they end up in Quito, and then they find their way through Colombia and then they can there's a jungle stretch called the Darien Gap which is at this well I'm sure we'll talk get deeper into this at some point tonight uh, that's pretty much controlled by uh, paramilitaries cartel groups criminal groups and they make a lot of money uh, charging up up to 10 to 15,000 uh, per group per, per person before they get into these river areas in the jungle to get into Panama now, Jonathan, these people that come in uh, from Haiti, you're saying each person has to pay $1,500 to go through this uh, Panamanian uh, gap there? It's actually up to 15000 now. Uh, wow. it used to, yeah, it's quite a bit of money. Um, no one really, I mean, it's not clear how a lot of these patients get the money because they're very poor, obviously. And ten to 15000 is a lot of money. But uh, that's partially why uh, there's a significant amount of women who get raped and killed during these treks, because some of these, these families can't pay for it. And uh, so now it's big business. And these are the lucky ones who were able to go through the jungle. And the southern part of Panama is not completely under Panamanian military control. And um, in this jungle, in this jungle, it's quite a big jungle, you have a couple of Indian uh, communities and they so they're dotted down the river and they put them on boats and they charge uh, a lot less but they charge $25 per person 
to put them on these boats. Uh, they're like um, wooden tree trunks, basically, that they cut. And then they, they put a motor engine in the back. It's very, very basic. So they bring them up downstream. And uh, then they, they get picked up, like in this picture, by a Panamanian military. And uh, the, the Panamanian military, after, puts them on. There's another smaller town a couple of hours down the river. They put them on buses, and then they ship them to uh, the nor their northern border, uh, where you have Costa Rica. And then they just pass them along to Costa Rica, and then it's their problem. So this is all somehow coordinated through both these, these small little villages, the military, uh, the cartels, and it seems like everyone's making money on these poor people trying to come up to South America eventually to end up in the United States. And you say that they're not, they don't have money, and this costs a lot of money. Could it be that they're going to be indentured servants once they hit the U.S. soil? I mean, once they, so to answer the first part of your question, yes, it's organized. Now, uh, these different groups who take advantage of these migrants uh, and don't obviously don't necessarily talk to each other, but the paramilitary groups on the Colombian side of the jungle are uh, heavily armed and very well trained because they were hired by the Colombian government years ago when Uribe was president to fight against the different uh, um, rebel groups like the FARC. And uh, they really had, the government had no use for them, so they, some of them just broke off and just ended up, you know, trying to find new ways to make money. And that's one way they make a lot of money, is they charge, you know, money for each migrant to go through their territories. So now basically the northern part of Colombia and the jungle that connects with Panama is entirely controlled by these different criminal organizations. And they're better armed, better equipped, especially the paramilitaries, then the Panamanian army who's totally undergunned and undertrained and doesn't have the resources. And they do clash in the jungle regularly. So it's quite a dangerous area. And they take casualties every year. Their main military base, which is uh, at the end of the road before the jungle start, really starts, is uh, you have a statue at the entrance of the main gate and it has all the dog tags of all the soldiers have been killed. And it's quite a bit. So uh, it's a complete mess. Uh, the U.S. is obviously uh, failing as what they should be doing. And uh, yeah, it's organized. So the, the Panamanian military um, uh, grabs these people and puts the, put them in these camps, you know, checks them for COVID, and then they, they take their prints, you know, they just check them out, and then they put them on buses, and the migrants have to pay $20 per person to get on these buses and then it goes up to Costa Rica and then it's not their problem anymore. And then Costa Rica does the same thing and then it goes up and up until they reach uh, Mexico and then we know the, the rest of the story. Billy, you got any questions? Yeah, I've, I'm loaded with questions after that, hearing this little tale of, uh, of uh, how they just do this. It's amazing. Now, $15,000 is obviously a lot of money. Now, I know uh, a lot of times when uh, we get illegal immigrants from Mexico and from Guatemala and, and countries like that, um, a lot of times they'll pay some of it and then they have to send, they come here and they go to work and then they have to send money back every, I don't know if it's every week or every month. And if they uh, skip payment or stop payment, they'll actually put pressure on the families back home. Now that picture right there says a lot because those are uh, pretty, modern looking life jacket. So obviously, uh, as Jonathan stated, this is a very organized operation. They, these are, they're moving people from country to country. Uh, the military is involved and it seems to me now, this is obviously a very political, uh, a political problem in the United States. They could put a stop to this in a New York minute, as they say, by, you know, I mean, I'm sure we give funding to Panama, Colombia, and these countries that are involved in this. Uh, diplomatically, I would be certain that if we wanted to, we could put an end to this tomorrow morning. Um, I mean, look at the casualties you're talking about between military casualties, you got drug lords, and then uh, obviously some of those boats don't look too safe, even though they have life jackets on. If you know you run into uh, one of those tropical storms, I would imagine there could be casualties from those uh, those little half-assed boats. I mean, those are just like you said, they're trees that are carved out and they throw a motor on the back. 
So, and, and you, you know, you're in a jungle atmosphere, which is obviously uh, dangerous with the indigenous animals and stuff. So, uh, you know, the wildlife. So uh, there's just so many, so many questions and so many things you can think about when you're seeing this. It's just amazing that it's happening. And they took a, a situation where people were trying to come and they, they formed businesses uh, out of it. And I, I saw in uh, one of the, uh, the spots that they got across, I don't know if it was the Baja Quito yeah, Bajo Chiquito, yeah. It's an Indian. It's like the last Indian uh, community in the jungle. After that, it's just, there's nothing. And the, the life jacket that you see, it's provided by these Indian communities. So they bought them and they bring them. So it's just to, you know, to, and uh, they make a killing. I think they make like three to $400 per boat twice a day. And when you hang out in that village uh, on the side of the river, uh, they so they're making a lot of money on on these migrants, and uh, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of them becoming complete alcoholics. Yeah, I was I was just going to bring that point up because I read that in in what you sent us that uh, that they're making so much money they're becoming like uh, bums like drunks in the uh, it's like a fishing town uh, yeah. is what I read. So yeah, I guess that's the uh, that's the side effect of what's going on. Yeah, there's like beer cans everywhere and they're trashed and it's like and then at four in the morning you know like the guys stumble out of bed or they just and uh, the migrants get all uh, in, in line it's still dark and then the military kind of like tr uh, funnels them back uh, towards the uh, the riverbank and then they put they, it's very organized it's like they go by 20s and each 20 goes into a boat and when it's loaded they bring them down the river to um uh, Lajas Blancas, which is a military base now. And from there, they put them in a camp and then a bus and so on. Uh, the, yeah, sure. The, the real question is, um, why is Panama allowing this to, to happen? Panama is a U.S. extension. I mean, it's not really an independent country. They use the U.S. dollar. A lot of Americans do business there. It's the Panama Canal. It's American control. Uh, so why is that? Is this happening? I think number one, uh, after Trump law, uh, was uh, taken out of power and replaced by uh, by Biden, he they had very confusing um, me messaging to the world. And like Trump was very clear, you can't come here. If you do, you're going to be sent back. So I think a lot of lot less people tried. But now it's it's not clear where the U.S. Go the White House is saying publicly. So a lot of people are trying. So the numbers are going up. Now, a lot of Haitians, especially because Haiti still has a very uh, strong uh, fertility rate. Uh, Haiti officially is about 12 million people, and we actually think it's closer to 14 million. So it's actually the only area between the two Americas that actually has an increasing population group. Everyone else is declining. The U.S., Mexico is like barely at replenishment levels. Central America is collapsing. South America, they're not having kids anymore. But Haiti, they still are. Kind of like in Africa, same thing. So they still have a big surplus of population, and it allows, and it's still a lot of a big flow of people coming in. You do see that obviously people from Central America and Mexico. But uh, their fertility rate has collapsed so much. I believe this is the end of uh, of that that push north. I think a country like Mexico, for decades, had a fertility rate of you know in the 60s it was like 5.5 children per woman, and now it's declined to 1.9, which is what France is 1.8 actually. So they don't have the excess of labor that they did for decades. And back in the day, up to 15 years ago, Mexico was very happy to let a lot of their poors, poor people leave Mexico, enter the U.S. The U.S. needed cheap labor. So it was a deal. And Mexico was like, okay, we have less poor people in our country. You can take them. And on top of that, they were sending billions of dollars back every year through Western Union. So for Mexico, it's a win-win situation. Less poor people to deal with. And I think it was like, like $2 billion people. I'm sorry, $2 billion a year was being sent back. So it's like free money coming back into the Mexican economy. 
Sure. So, that, so that's why they never blocked anything. And then the U.S. needed cheap labor to work the fields and our kitchens and so on. I think that's coming to an end. Uh, now for Haiti, obviously, uh, the, the birth rate is quite high. So it remains, uh, it remains a problem. But Jonathan, I mean, I've heard that as an argument before that, uh, you know, we need cheap labor. But in reality, though, for, for when you let people in illegally, the taxpayers of the United States wind up paying a tremendous amount of money for their health insurance, for um, bringing their families over, for housing and all this other stuff. Because I don't think they're ready just to assimilate into American society and start working uh, in a job and paying taxes and driving cars and getting a license and, you know, voting, which I think that's the major reason I think they're not stopping this is uh, a certain party wants the instant, you know, instant D on their jersey, you know. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons they're not stopping it. No, no. I, so this is the other side. You're right. Like the, the, the situation from our side of the border, I agree, I think. Um, you know, I, Historically, if we're going to be accurate, a lot of people in the Republican Party for decades was very happy to have illegal immigration come in for commercial reasons, like we just I just described briefly. Now things have part, partially changed, you know, with the, the the rise of Trumpism, obviously. But um, the the you're right, the progressives today has become purely an ideological machine. Where for them, our, the idea of nation state is what that's, is at stake here. What's a nation state? It's you control your borders, you have your own currency, you have your own laws, you're a patriot. You, that's, that's nation state. Europe, for example, has completely gone astray from that. From the progressive perspective, nation state is a, is almost a fascist um, uh, uh, understanding. So for them, it needs to be open borders, so kind of like a, a big world community of everybody can come in and mix. The problem with that, and I agree, I mean, I'm personally obviously totally against it, is what's the point of holding a U.S. passport then? Why am I paying taxes for now? What does it mean to be American? I mean, if it's just to be like this, I mean, no, the, the White House, I don't think it'll go through, but who knows? They want to pay, what, $450,000 per illegal immigrant? Yeah, amazing. It's amazing I mean, to me. But, so if that's the case, again, what's the point of being a U.S. citizen then? I want to sneak, Jonathan, I want to sneak into Mexico and see if they're going to give me 450 Yeah, maybe you can do that. You can just renounce your citizenship let's, and just go back and you get like half a million dollars. Three you know, of us do it and try and get back there. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, this is suicide. Uh, I think a lot of Americans are against it. So. You, you know, Jonathan, you brought up the point about the mixed messaging, like from when Trump was in office, there was obviously a uh, a lot less people coming over the border. He was building the wall. He built a lot of the wall. And then, you know, if you watch uh, the current administration on television, a press conference, they're saying one thing, but they're doing something else. And obviously the people that are controlling these uh, passageways through Colombia and Panama from Haiti into the U.S., they're obviously not paying attention to what's being uh, broadcast on, you know, the press conferences or the, the talking points from the White House. They're getting the information back from the people that are at the border or coming over the border or just came over the border. And recently, I mean, we've had things in the United States that are just mind boggling. For instance, they're taking people that came over and they're putting them and, you know, they want to put it on Mexico. I'm glad you brought the point up that there's not a lot of Mexican uh, migration to the U.S. anymore. It's coming from a lot of other countries. They just passed through Mexico. Uh, like you said, I mean, most of the people that wanted to migrate here from Mexico have already done so over the last 20, 30, 40 years. So, so that's a good point that you bring up. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that they took people that came over the border they weren't COVID tested, whether they were positive or negative. And then they, in the middle of the night, they were dispersed throughout the country. Now, that's uh, a statement to me. The statement that that's telling me is that they want the people here. They don't care about the COVID. And obviously, word, you know, these people have relatives back home. Word is filtering back. And I think that's why you're seeing the big push. And, 
you know, for these, for these little small uh, fishing villages that are, you know, they're, they're making so much money that they're becoming alcoholics. It's, you know, the more the merrier. This is, they're, they're hoping for this to continue. And unfortunately it is. No, I, I agree. Listen, uh, I, I, I mean, this current White, White House is, has a responsibility towards what's happening now. We don't actually know how many thousands of migrants are dying every year in these jungle passes. Apparently, the numbers are quite high. Now, if if you these people in the White House pretend to have the moral high ground, which obviously they do not, and I don't think anybody's buying it. Or maybe some do, but you know these people are ideologues and they're therefore not thinking. Um, if you really wanted to do something, you could go after these groups and take them out physically. You could do that. We know where they are. They're you know it's not impossible it's totally doable how come we don't do that how come the colombian government doesn't do that we could put pressure on the common government but they don't do that either now they never can purely control that area very well you know it's very thick jungles and so forth but western countries have won guerrilla wars before it's it's happened in the 60s in brunei when the british were fighting there so it's not the first time um, so uh, these, I think the White House has some blood in their hands just for that reason alone. And the other thing I would like to point out, talking about migration, um, if you really want to help these people, you should help them in their home country. Because at the end of the day, no one really wants to leave home. It's not a success to be coming to the U.S. I disagree. Yeah, some people will make it. But... That American dream that everybody's always talking about, I think it's fractured quite a bit. It's not as easy as it once was. It's actually incredibly difficult. You know, Jonathan, we're trying to make the American dream through podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and if you really wanted to help a place, I mean, I've been to Haiti. I was covering gang war in Haiti twice, you know, and recently uh, three months ago. So I know Haiti quite well. It's a, it's a complete, it's a... I mean, it's an overall war zone. I mean, it's become hell. The other big migration that's coming through, if we're going to expand the conversation, that's a real going to be the real conversation we should be having for the next 30 years. In, in 1900, Africa had 100 million people. 100 million. Europe was about 400 million. Now Europe is 500 million and declining. You know, the birth rate is catastrophic. Italy is 1.2 children per women. They're dying. Africa is going to be 2 billion people in 2050. So a lot of people are coming through uh, also from Central America to here. They're from Africa. They're from West Africa, a lot of them. They speak French. I, could, I, I, speak, I you know, speak with them. If you have a 2 billion people in, uh, in, in 28 years, 28 years is tomorrow, right? In the grand scheme of things, that's, it's right there. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to cope with that? Europe is the first target, obviously. But Europeans have decided to die historically, so I think it's almost game over for Europe. <laughs> Jimmy, you're Europe making some terrific Europe. points, Jonathan, I'll tell you. You're making I mean, some Europe, Europe, Europeans have their, 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 their heads stuck up their ass so far that they refuse to see what's about to happen to them. And the United States should look carefully what's happening to Europe now, and they should reconsider it very clearly what they really want for their future. Jonathan, I want to play a little bit of an interview so people can understand who you are and what you actually do. It's just a short little um, video that I'm going to share here. It's a bit different. Most photojournalists, they, they view themselves purely as photographers. For me, uh, my experience is a much more historical understanding of things. So I'm a medieval history major from U Chicago, and I needed a medium that would allow me to uh, embed myself in historical moments. And there's nothing more historical than war. War shapes men and nations and everything. And photography was that link between the historical side of me and wanted to be in conflict. I always wanted to experience war. So I started shooting. I was picked up by Getty very quickly. My career just picked up from there rapidly. And I've covered the 13 wars, uh, mostly in the Middle East, Central Asia, and uh, now the Ukraine, the Balkans. I've been shooting for a lot of big magazines like Vanity Fair, Elle Magazine, shot for Getty Images for a long time. So I've been quite active in that business. Obviously with the, the so-called Arab Spring, all the conflicts in the Middle East, it's making us, in my profession, a very active period of our lives in terms of 
being around and, and shooting all these different conflicts that are happening. I'm still very active today, even after I was kidnapped in Syria for a few months in 2013. And actually, I went right back into conflict as soon as I was released. The war in the Ukraine started, and for me, it was a very cathartic experience to be able to go back to war. Pretty amazing, Jonathan. I mean, I think many people would look at that and look at the life you've lived and say, oh, my God, that's so exciting. I would love to do that. But it, it's, a, it's pretty damn scary, though, too. You have to embed yourself, right? In order to be a war photographer, don't you have to be embedded with the side that's basically the side that's winning, right, and uh, be protected or under their care? I mean, it, it depends on the conflict that you're you're covering or the story that you're you're doing. Um, I mean, you do have you can cover both sides. Uh, I was mentioning the Ukraine, and I interviewed, and I covered both sides. In Syria, we can only cover the the rebel the rebellion side, but um, it, it's. Yeah, it's, uh, it is exciting to live this life, but it's, uh, it comes at a heavy price as well, which is... And what is that? What's the heavy price? You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, it uh, chips away at you over the decades, you know, over the years. Uh, I mean, you guys were in a force, and we understand, you know, it piles up all the things that you see, you know, and then everybody deals with it differently, you know, and then it's up to you to... Uh, to know yourself well enough in order to know when to stop or to continue or take a break and these things. I think, um, like I mentioned in that uh, in that small skit that you played, uh, history for me is the big reason why I do what I do. And it's given me the ability to think things very clearly, not just because you get to be on the ground, but also because uh, it makes you think very rationally. And I think in today's world, and a lot of people think uh, don't think rationally, and they use their emotions over reason. And when you're you're like this personally, we have a lot of people around you in your in your society that only are emotional. Then a lot of mistakes are made. You're not thinking very clearly. And I think what's what we're, what we're seeing now in the United States is very telling for that. People are not thinking clearly because they're they're using emotions over reason, and I think it's a terrible mistake. You know, Jonathan, it, that's amazing. I mean, I would think that uh, someone that's in the journalistic world would be more left leaning, and you seem yeah. to be more. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious, no. and you seem to be more right leaning, based yeah, on right. what you've right. seen throughout your life and in different parts of the world that. It's almost like you, a cop. We we think that we have a sixth instinct, you know, that because of the things we've seen, that we see things more clearly. And that may or may not be true, but that's how we think anyway. We think that we have that sixth sense, you know, and I think you do also. Yeah, I mean, I've always been very conservative and, uh, you know, it's, it's hurt my career once in a while. I mean, yeah, but I've never hired from it. You know, I've always been very forward. I show myself publicly like today and I say what I say and I mean it and I don't want to use a pseudo name on social media. It's me, you know, I'm not hiding. I think what you're talking about is very interesting and we, I think we had brushed on it last time we talked a few months ago. I remember, uh, which is something I didn't cover because I had no interest, not interested at all in any way, which is the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And you would notice, and in a lot of these protests, it was mostly white progressive people. And I remember I talked to some of them because I, you know, you always you're in New York, so you meet some of these people. And I always would tell them, like, what the hell do you know about being black from the ghetto? You don't know. Right. You don't know what it's like. And like you're 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 speaking for them now. They don't know. They're mostly like middle class, upper middle class, some upper classes. They have money. Fine. I don't trust fund that. babies. Some of them, yeah, and a lot of them are, are pretty well off in their protest revolutions. And the second tier of the, the way my argument is, these people want to do revolution. If that's the case, then they want civil war. If that happens, I guarantee you 99% of these people are going to be running to their mothers before, yep. as soon as they hear their first yep. gunshot. Yep. It's easy for them to protest when the, the system allows you to do so. We'll talk again when you protest and you have the system against you, then we'll talk. 
And I guarantee you these people will not be on the street. And, you know, Jonathan, the, the very same people that you're talking about also, they hate the police and they hate the military. Maybe the answer is to put their ass in a green uniform for about three or four years and let them uh, sing the Marine Corps hymn and see see if that changes their politics a little bit, you know? You know, there, there was a, I forget what, I think it was in May, I, I, I saw this recently, it was very interesting, up to the, I forget, I think they stopped it in the 60s, but I have to double check on that. There was a cemetery day, and the school children would have to go to military cemeteries and walk in the cemetery and kind of pay their respect to their forefathers who fought and died, which the idea of doing this is that we are a nation, and the nation is complete because we know its past, and you respect its past for better or worse. You don't judge it. It's what it is. And they used to do that. They don't do that anymore. I think we should go back and... Because death is part of life too. And even as a child, you have to, you know, maybe you don't understand, but something stays, you know, it stays within you, deep within you. And uh, I think this uh, this would be a nice thing to do. Actually, in France, there's a big conversation about uh, it won't happen, but uh, having another, because before uh, young men had to go to the service for one year. And I think we should go back to that. You know, Jonathan, in Israel, everyone has just to do, say Israel, what is it, two years in the three army? Years. Three years. Three that years. Is, that is the best thing you could ever do because all these snot-nosed Antifa kids, yeah. all these morons that are, you know, protesting and spraying people with mace and all that stuff, let yeah. them let them put on a green uniform for three years. Let them march. Mm -hmm. Let them be, be in a foxhole. Let them be shot at. And then maybe their whole perception on life will change, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think it's good. It's you know, you know, young men, teenagers. You know, they were, kids need a bit of structure as well. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's part of that. These different seasons you go through your life. You know, like you're a young man, but you also need some sort of a of guidance. Otherwise, you're just you know, you're roaming around like an idiot. You know, Jonathan. Jonathan yeah. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I wanted to just play this short video yeah. and. This was on CBS Morning, and it seems like they they they, they gave you about thirty five seconds. But uh, uh, and this was on the book, The Shattered Lens. I just want to play a portion oh, of this. Yeah, there was a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. They they really didn't give you much time, these folks. So, well, yeah. There's CBS. Jonathan Alperi joins us now. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Take us back to that moment when you were captain. So this was my third trip into Syria. Uh, and this time I decided to go through Lebanon in order to cover the fighting near Damascus, which was very heavy at the time. And at the time, the rebels were still at the upper hands. And there was uh, an enclave which you get smuggled into. And from there, I covered the, basically the battle between mostly Hezbollah infantry and uh, Syrian Air Force against various uh, rebel forces. And after 10 days, they uh, decided to kidnap me instead of letting me go. Do you remember what went through your mind in that moment when you were kidnapped? Yeah, it's very strange. I think like most traumatic experiences, everything goes very uh, slowly, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you you think it's not really happening and it's not real. There's a mistake and everything will get resolved. So usually there's that moment when you, uh, you think that you're actually dreaming what you're going through. You were blindfolded, handcuffed, and I know beaten uh, during your captivity, 81 days. Yeah, for 81 days, the first month, there's a lot of torturing going on, mock executions, interrogations, and they play a game with you where one day they're very nice, and the other day they're very difficult with you. I think it's meant partially to break your will and to keep you on your toes so you don't really know what to do if you want to escape or try anything against them. So they really break you up like that. Yeah, who were the captors? So you have, as you know, many rebel factions in Syria. It's a very complicated affair. But at the time, it was mostly local militias who were fighting the regime. But because they were having such difficult problems with the Hezbollah infantry, they brought in a lot of al-Nusra front people yeah. who were much more experienced and disciplined at fighting. So they did it, you think? Yeah, I mean, back. it's all connected, and yeah, definitely. You, you talk in the book about gaining the trust of your captors. How did you do that? It's, uh, so in this, it's a question of survival. Um, 
you have to pick out who you can trust and who you don't trust. Usually I would go after the younger soldiers who were more interested in the fact that I was from the Western world, they were more curious about me, so they were nicer to me. The torturing and beatings were done mostly by the older or the officer group. So I spent a lot of time manipulating these young guys to make sure I would get little favors, like making sure my handcuffs were not as tight or maybe be allowed to go to the bathroom one extra time during the day, just very little things that make your life easier. So how did you escape? Well, there was a, a ransom, which is often the case when it comes to kidnapping, that was uh, given out to by a man, which I can't give the name of, uh, of course, but he, he was part of, the, of a blacklist that was written down by the European Union and the United States of powerful Syrian men like himself, who are parliamentary and close to the regime, but also uh, do businesses around the world. And when you're on that list, you can't travel, they freeze your assets, and he wanted that to be gone, obviously. So by paying for me and releasing me, he was hoping to give uh, to get a favor from the United States or France and be freed from it, which happened briefly, and then he was put back right on that list afterwards. Mm -hmm. would, would you ever go back to Syria? Um, of course, I, uh, you're always tempted uh, to go back to these different war zones just for personal reasons. After the war, when it ends, which will most likely happen fairly soon, uh, I would definitely like to go back and see the places where I was, ki I was captured. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Jonathan Alperi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's you know, Jonathan, I, I, it's, your story is so amazing, and it's like the balls you have uh, to, to go back there and to continue doing what you're doing. But when I see these people interviewing you, I know they could not give a shit about what you're talking about. Sure. I really they just, you know, yeah. I've seen so many of these reporters feigning. Oh, my God. What was it like to be captive? You know, and, and 10 seconds later, they're selling Alpo dog food, you know, in a 30-second <laughs> yeah, commercial. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's corporate uh, journalism. And Charlie Rose is good. You know, he, he got uh, cancel culture, though, unfortunately. Yeah, he oh, he, he was a, he was another sexual, another sexual harassment yeah, guy. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you God. know, I was kidnapped once uh, for a weekend by a young lady when I was in my 20s. And <laughs> I went back <laughs> after a while. To visit her, but uh, all kidding aside, all kidding aside, three months in captivity and you were being tortured, it sounded like. Now, you started to talk a, a little early about different things that uh, like it catches up with you. You, you, you're sound, it sounds like you're uh, explaining symptoms of PTS, which Bill and I and anybody who's been an active law enforcement officer, especially in the 80s and 90s when things were crazy in New York. Do you think that that's where we're going? Is there PTS uh, symptoms that you're going through? I mean, I know I have that. But the, the thing about PTSD, I think it's a, uh, it's a term we have to use carefully. Uh, people tend to, not in your case, but I'm talking about uh, people will say, oh, I, uh, I saw something violent on the street once and I have PTSD. No, it's not PTSD. I think people have real PTSD. It's something that drags over time. It's a lot of different kinds of experiences and it piles up over the years. And then, yes, uh, being a police officer for 20 years, of course, you know, I mean, it's just all these things that you end up seeing. Everybody deals with it differently. Yes, yes. You, you know what? With the police department, let me just make this one little. I mean, there are cops that are active, and then there are cops that maybe they spend their whole career not so active. I think it's a matter of being an active police officer. You know, 9 11, I, I don't think uh, anybody was down there. That was a PTS moment uh, maximum, you know. But uh, Billy will tell you, you know, the, the, we have colleagues that. I always put like there's four categories. There was complete do nothings on the police force. There was guys that just showed up for a paycheck and did what they had to do to get by right. their eight hours and 35 minutes. There were active guys and then there were super cops. The super cops were probably like you. I mean, these guys, all they did was eat, breathe, sleep and drink. And, right. and everything was about, you know, making a collar and, and being a cop, you know. So, uh, but I think that, you know, I, I was very active for a lot of years. Billy was very active and, uh, you know, having symptoms of PTS. Uh, it's, it's something that caught up with me after I retired. I had some different issues and uh, I was able to get through it, uh, especially it really triggered 9-11 was one of the triggers for me. But now, thank God, that's uh, kind of in the past for me. And, you know, but there are things that, that just never wash out of you, like uh, 
they talk about, I, I don't know if this happens to you, but you know, you always seem to be watching what's going on around you. I mean, that's how it is for me. That's called uh, hypervigilance. That's yes, called. exactly. Exactly. So I, I would imagine being kidnapped for three months would cause hypervigilance. Yeah, I, I bet you, Jonathan, you're sitting at a cafe on uh, 70th and 3rd Avenue and you're looking around all over the place. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm very aware of my environment. I also yes. rode motorcycles for a long time, so that that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going to go to a quick commercial. Then, Jonathan, I'm going to play a um, another video of you in Greece, basically watching some uh, ri some riots. I think there's some parallels between there and what happened in New York City. I just want you to comment on that after this commercial. Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Joe's going to have his own podcast real soon called apparently guilty. Uh, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. That's 646-838-1702. 1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. That's joe at jmurray-law.com. I think I said it wrong. It's allegedly guilty, right? Isn't that the name of yeah, it? Al though? Allegedly guilty. That's allegedly right. Allegedly guilty. Okay. Right. So Jonathan, this is some, uh, some file tape from, uh, I believe it's from Greece. And uh, I just want to, I'm going to play it and then you fact, can comment I, on I it. I do think, um, I'm, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. The thing that stuck to my mind with the riots the past couple of days here is the very urban type fighting that's happening between the riot police and the protesters. So it's very, has a clear front line and then it moves forward and then you take up positions to uh, control a cross section of street and then they move back. And so in that sense, it's very warlike. I think the only thing that's missing is actual guns or wep actual weapons. Uh, American police officers do kill people often in the U.S., and you hear about it throughout the nation, not just New York. It happens in New York a little bit more now because of the crisis. But nobody, no, people think it's pretty normal. As a matter of fact, Americans, a lot more than Europeans, are a lot more respect, have a lot more respect towards the army or the police. Anybody with a uniform, people respect that. There's a there's a, a common thing between France or Italy or Spain or Portugal or uh, Greece. I think it's it deals with a more Latin type mentality of fighting against a, a government or a system represented by a government. Well, Greece has a specific reputation in the world, obviously, from country to uh, to another. In the United States, people know that Greeks are you know hot blooded people. And when they, they want to fight, they really go and fight, you know. So I think uh, nobody's really surprised and everybody understands that the economic crisis is tough. So uh, my name is. Yeah. So, Jonathan, yeah. Uh, there are certain parallels with that in the U.S., but I think that's what hap what's happened in the U.S. over the past uh, five or ten years is this whole uh, defund the police movement and this whole disrespect, not just towards the police and the armed forces. And I think it's some of these organized groups like Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and some of these, these groups don't have a clear path of what the hell they're doing or what is their cause. You know, I would like to know how much money that was donated to Black Lives Matter actually made it into the communities that really need that money. And also in regards to like Antifa, we've actually had politicians say that Antifa is just an idea. It's not real. That's They actually said that. Biden. Well, Billy, the, the head of Black Lives Matter has to own three houses. Don't you recall that just recently? It was yeah, I mean, so how could the money get into the into where it's supposedly going to the communities when they're buying three and four houses in, uh, you know, up in the canyon in, uh, in L.A.? And uh, it's ridiculous. It's a, to it's a total joke. Jonathan comments. Um, when it comes to uh, these kinds of movements, uh, 
um, uh, 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 part of these people are ideologues, obviously, and they firmly believe what they're saying. And a, a larger minority of that overall group of people, they're making, like you say, they are making a lot of money. I mean, it, it is uh, creating a, a lot of, uh, of money going around. And that's one of, in my opinion, one, probably the biggest reason why companies like uh, Delta, or Ben and Jerry's, these companies are going completely, was it the word is woke. Right. Um, and they're not doing that because they actually believe in that ideology. They do it because they don't want to lose business. That's the only reason. So that's why I, th I, th I think those two communists from Ben's, Ben and Jerry's, though, I think they, they really believe the nonsense. That I I won't eat Ben and Jerry's if I was going through ice cream withdrawal for ten years. I will not eat their product. <laughs> it, you know the the hypocrisy is intense because, for example, even Nike, who's gone woke, a, a lot of inner city kids will buy Nike shoes. Huh? They'll dress up and they'll buy these these uh, expensive clothing items. But their their stuff there though they can't barely afford or they shouldn't be buying in the first place. So they're being taken advantage of, and they don't even know it. And these companies pretend that they have a more high ground, and they're saying, well, you know, we have to, to do this and do that. And they're charging $300 for a pair of sneakers. So, you know, until people really wake up to, to, to this hypocrisy, and these companies are just here to make, I mean, the purpose of a, a firm is to make a profit. There's nothing wrong with it. But if that's the case, don't get into politics. Do not talk about politics. Good point. Good quiet. point. Yeah, if you want to make money, fine. Just don't. Just be quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Well, did did you hear uh, what was the comedian's uh, presentation at the Golden Globes? Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ricky Gervais. Oh, he was, that was unbelievable. And I saw the faces on these fat cats, and it yeah. was almost like he kicked them right in the kilyonis. And yeah. the guy, the head of Apple, he was like horrified that he actually went after him. Tom, uh, Tom Hanks had his face was the best. Yeah, I mean, you know? these people yeah. are hypocrites. Uh, it, it's 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 interesting because you brought up Apple. Apple Computer is a very woke company, and uh, there was a great conference conference made a couple of years ago with a, a very famous uh, geostrategist called. Uh, George Friedman, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a Hungarian Jew who came over to the U.S. in the 50s. Anyway, and he did this great, uh, 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 a great uh, uh, talk, and he's, the first thing he does is he pulls out his cell phone. And isn't the entire crowd of a few thousand people is all very progressive, you know, younger generation people, individuals. And he tells them, you say to everybody that you have a more high ground, Yet you use a cell phone, and every technology that's in a cell phone was made in the 1950s by military engineers. For example, the GPS that we use, they use for our military, for units to communicate for, to one another. The, the technology that we used to take pictures was used originally to beam. So the satellites would take pictures and it was beamed back to Earth for spying purposes. So it's war. All these things are conflict. And on top of that, that, I'll add that myself, the rare earth that we have to use to make our chips, so these function from our computers or cameras or phones, it gets dug out in the Congo and you know in, in Turkey and Brazil. These are all highly are, are conflict zones. So you say you're a progressive individual and you like, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that. You buy a new phone every two years on average. Think about where all this technology comes from and the rare earth that we use to build our chips that make our technology work. In the Congo, they've been waging war since 1998 for that reason alone, killed over 5 million people. So, you know. He talks about that, though. No one cares. Well, no one gives a shit. But uh, it, the hypocrisy is intense. And uh, it's much easier to do like Michelle Obama and Polar signed from the White House when her husband was president says, bring back our girls. Remember when 300 girls were kidnapped? Yes, I remember that. Yeah. Nigeria? That's easy. Everybody can do that. That's not, these, these people are not serious individuals.
It's oh, you could say that again, especially when it comes to the Obamas, the fact that they're all into the climate and everything, and then they're buying uh, property on Martha's Vineyard, flying around in yeah. private jets. So yeah. the hypocrisy is immense. But, Jonathan, you brought up something earlier, and you said – I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you basically said that you you seem to be conservative or you lean conservative. Now, I just think that somebody that's been through the things that you've been through and the things that you've seen – like Bill and I with law enforcement, you know, you see people at their worst and you're getting the reality of the world. You're getting reality of life. And it's very easy to be conservative after experiencing those things. To me, I don't think it's really even conservative. I think it's common sense. You know, common sense is telling us that if you don't have a border on your uh, in your country, then why do you hold a passport? You made that point early, and I think that's a great point. So without without a border, we don't have a country. Now, if we're going to just allow all these people to come in, then we have to feed them, take care of them, educate their children, clothe them, all the things that we're going to do, provide medical care, and then they're going to take money that they make here and send it back to their country to pay drug lords or whoever these human traffickers are. So it, it really is just to me, I don't think it's a conservative point of view. I think it's a common sense point of view. What you basically said, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth again, but it sounds to me like it's just common sense. Uh, you know, we're, we're a welcoming country. We're all immigrants to the country, so to speak, but you can't just open the floodgates. You got to come here with a reason, a purpose, and you have to pass through uh, whatever, uh, you know, whatever means that you have to meet to, to come into the country. And now they're just, you know, the floodgates are open. The word is going back out. I mean, they're talking about giving $450,000 per person that was separated from their family. And they said most of those people that were separated were only separated because the people that they were weren't their real parents. They were children that were given to these people to take to cross the border because they knew if they came with children, they'd be put in a separate category. And so all of these things to me are just the point I'm trying to make. It's just really common sense. I don't think it's so much about being a conservative or a liberal or it's our country. We're in this country. And if we don't protect our own country, it's like opening the back door to your house and the front door and just letting anybody come in and, you know, burglar comes in. And yeah. Take what you want. That's what we're doing basically, you know? So yeah. I guess he didn't think that was a question. <laughs> it, was, it was more of a comment, I guess. Every once in a while, give some commentary, you know, Jonathan. <laughs> no, but, but, but the question is this, would you agree that that, being conservative in your thinking is basically like common sense based on what you've seen. That's the real point, I guess. I got lost in it, but I mean, my my my, the, my conservative uh, is partially my upbringing. I mean, it's, it was my environment as well, growing up in France and later in the U.S. Uh, for my, you know, most of my family. Um, but it, and then you know it became more than that, and it's um, you know you, you become your own man, and then you you decide for yourself. Everybody has influences, whether it's environmental, your family, or friends. That, that's normal. Uh, the sense of realism of where we the the how should I say this? At the end of the day, uh, life will always hit you back, and and the real side of life will always hit you back. However, ideology, you want to spin it into something else. When it comes to the, the real aspect of life, it will always come straight back, stare right back at you and hit you in, like a wall. So perhaps uh, that's why you could argue that maybe something bad needs to happen in order for people to wake up. And but, but you know, you know, Jonathan, that, that did happen on 9-11, and it woke us up maybe for about a year or two, and then everyone yeah. forgot. Very That's quickly. because the 9-11 issue, if we're going to speak about this candidly, is, of course, it was a physical attack, but it, it was also a very symbolic attack uh, because it, it did attack the entirety of the Western world. A lot of different nationalities was, were killed that day, not just Americans. But beyond that, uh, if it's the, the symbolic aspect of things only takes you so far, unless you live it in your flesh, it dwindles over time pretty quickly. I mean, a government can keep reviving it and you know, and keep it in our common consciousness. In this case, in the United States, 
But in order to really have that reality of life, like you guys have been, you know, living for a long time, you have to, to physically be there. You need to feel it. You need to sense it. You need to to to, to experience it. And um, that's why it's so difficult for soldiers who come home to be able to to come back to a normal life, partially because the people they meet again when they come home, they didn't go overseas. They don't know what it's like to be in a war. Uh, so it makes it very hard to, to reconnect. And uh, I think that's very important to, to understand that. You know, Jonathan, we interviewed a uh, retired uh, NYPD sergeant who goes back and forth uh, to Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah. and he's been, in, after he retired from the NYPD, he's been in the military for like 16 years. And I mean, when we interviewed him, and I won't say his name on here, the PTSD hit me in the face f- through the screen. And he was he made that quote, he goes, when I'm home, I want to be here. Yeah. And when I'm here, I want to be home. But really, he was much more comfortable there because yeah. he just he has such severe need to the the action. And but he's got he's got uh, crazy crazy PTSD. And I wonder if he can ever survive in the real world once his days of uh, of fighting are over. You know. I, you know th- that that problem has no solution. Uh, it's it's always been there for any man who's been in wars the past 20,000 years, however long wars are, have been around. I think it's common to each one of us who've been through it. It's like a, this addiction. It's a bit like taking drugs, you know? You know it's bad for you, but yet you do it again, you know? Uh, so once you taste it, it's hard, and if and you sense that it's for you, it's hard to let it go. And I think that's a real kicker, and it's difficult to. But like I like to say, you know, like you make your own choice, you know, and you have to, like we say in France, if you're going to jump in a fire, you better wash yourself with the flames, you know, like you better, you got to take responsibility for it. Uh, that's what it is, you know. Absolutely. And even if it's, you know, even if it's hard and it's difficult to, to go back to a normal life, I would never take back what I've seen that most people haven't seen. And I'm very grateful for that. Well, you know, Jonathan, that's one of the things, like, people seem to talk with great uh, emotion, with great uh, intelligence, especially a lot of journalists that haven't done anything really with their life other than sit behind a typewriter and write their feelings on things. But not only can you talk the talk, but you can walk the walk. You've done it. And, you know, when your uh, war photography days are over and you, sh- you start shooting long legs instead of, <laughs> instead of wars in, in, in Call countries. me up when you do that. Yeah, when you do, yeah, I'll be your assistant when you start doing exactly, that. Exactly. But, but when you stop doing war photography and you start, you know, I, I read some stuff about you that you can make much more money doing a, uh, photographing models. You know, and, you know, one day you may tire of it or one day you may say, you know, I want a a more stable life of, you know, the white picket fence, suburbia and the, you know, the basketball hoop in the the driveway, you know. So but when that day comes, you've done this already and you'll always have this as uh, as your foundation. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, That's. Obviously, something I think about right now. I'm I'm still young enough so I can play the game, but uh, you know, sometimes you have to just let it go. So we'll see. Billy, you know that that individual you brought up about the interview we did, and I thought one of the things that was striking when he said about when he's there, he'd rather be home, and when he's home, he'd rather be there. He brought out a point, and he said that when he's there, when meaning there, when he's in a conflict zone, he's surrounded with other guys, uh, you know, military guys, and there's a brotherhood. Everybody's the same. Everybody's thinking the same. It's self-preservation. They they did so many things that uh, 
you know, that th- th- he saved so many people's lives and stuff. So when he comes back to, you know, back down to earth, so to speak, or he comes back to, to home, you know, he's just around ordinary people doing their ordinary things. And it he feels out of place, I think was one of the points that he made. So he did it so many times that when he's there, this is where he feels like he belongs and he's doing that. And everybody that's around him is doing the same thing. They all have the same mission comes home he's just you know joe blow throwing the garbage out or doing whatever it is he's doing and everybody's just doing their own thing you know the uh the so-called rat race i guess he 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 made the point that he didn't feel comfortable in that in that zone that's why he was you know continuing to do these deployments overseas so uh, you know phil i always remember when i was a young cop in anti-crime and also in street crime I couldn't wait to go to work every day. Exactly. I, to me, to me exactly. work was like entertainment. I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to go into work tonight. And it was just like, you know, there's that expression on the police department that I actually hate, but I it's sort of it's sort of real where they say uh, NYPD have a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Yeah. And you, you really can have a front row seat or you can be a zero and just do nothing and have a seat, you know, in the back of the theater, you know. But uh, I just want to say something. Peter Pranzo, he makes this a comment. A comment. Combat and violence has staying power. Military and police accept it. Live with it. Thank you, Lieutenant yes. Pete. And we know that you talk the talk, but you can walk the walk, too. We know that for a fact. And I just want to read a couple of more comments. Uh, Detective Phil, I'm going to quote you daily. Not as much conservative as common sense person. Laugh out loud, although I'm very much a conservative. Uh Jen Lowe, it's how you were brought up. Do you have morals or not? Uh, Horsewoman 2000, this is the real story. More should cover this problem. Marine Gun, love you guys. You're the real deal. Love listening to Phil. Hey, Phil, more people love you than me. I'm getting a little jealous here. You know? <laughs> I'm <laughs> having a good, having a good day. <laughs> imagine we had Jonathan on more. They would all switch from you and me and love Jonathan, you know? Yes, uh, yeah. Dawn Marie, I love this police off the cuff dipped. Police off the cuff dipped. We know that reference. That's great. Maui Swift, yes, immigration has to be trickled. Otherwise, you have problems like Europe. You know, guys, every once in a while, we get away from the um, the crime story. And when we can have a, a super interesting guest uh, like Jonathan Appelier. And a while ago, and I think at least three times, we interviewed um, uh, Joe Pistone. Uh, Donnie Brasco. And I was talking to him one uh, uh, day and uh, I mentioned that Jonathan was coming on the show and he goes, Oh, he goes, I know Jonathan. And I was like, how cool that uh, this, you know, this whole podcasting guest thing that people, birds of a feather, I think I'm trying to say birds of a feather flock together. And how cool it was it that Joe Pistone knew Jonathan Alprelia. And I was just like, that is really cool. And then I, Spoke to Jonathan about it. He goes, yeah, yeah, we, we've spoken. We've had lunch together, right? Yeah, no, I've known Joe for a couple of years. We were introduced, and then we stayed good friends. I like Joe a lot. He's a great guy. So oh, ex- excellent guy. He, you notice guy. he'll never let you know where he is, though. And he's, yeah. he, puts the, he puts the lights down really low when he's yeah, yeah. on your show. And I'm like, Joe, put on some lights. And he wears his sunglasses. I'm like, how can you see anything, Joe? You know? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Joe. <laughs> He's good people, Joe. I tell you, we we've really, uh, Bill. Since I started doing the show, I mean, we've inter, inter- uh, interviewed and met some really wonderful people. And Jonathan, it's such a pleasure to be uh, in your company and hear these stories. I mean, it's just fantastic. And especially on Veterans Day, I mean, Veterans Day for me. Uh, both of my grandfathers fought. In World War One, my father was in World War Two. As many as my uncles were, uh, we, I come from a military family. Uh, you know, two couple of generations already. So, on a day like today, it's just uh, it's a pleasure to be part of it. And uh, I got to say thank you to my man up there, Bill Cannon, for bringing <laughs> me in on this stuff. Thank well, you. Phil, you know, with Jonathan, Phil is um, or, or probably he's been with me about three months now, and he started out as a guest. And we got along so well, and we knew each other because we were on a TV show together called uh, The Perfect Murder on Investigation Discovery, where we both played detectives. Hmm. Yeah, you, Jonathan, you didn't know we we're jacks of all trades here. Actors, <laughs> stand-up comics, podcasters, you know, we can do it all. But uh, anyway, so he's been he's been with me now for about three months. And, you know, the show is growing. Uh, and you know something? 
that I like doing shows like interviewing you too. I, I like to get away from the crime thing every once in a while and do something different. And, and uh, to me, you're, you know, you're you're a breath of fresh air. And having said that, guys, if you're not subscribed, go on the uh, Police Off the Cuff YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button, ring the bell, and give us a thumbs up. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're you're in the right place. Jonathan, where are you going next? I'm going to Colombia next month. And what's what's the assignment? I can't say. Oh Ooh. my God, it's top secret. That means he's got to come back to tell us about it when he's all done. Is, uh, is, is SEAL Team Six assigned to you or what? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Somebody's got his back. God bless him. It is Phil. Less less words. Last words again, Veterans Day, uh, hats off to all our veterans. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't to the veterans that fought for this country, died for this country, and kept us free all the years that that we've been here. And going forward, thank you to the vets. Uh, Jonathan, so great to have met you. Uh, love doing this podcast, Billy. And uh, I'm just finishing off in a good mood. And thank you again. Uh, Jonathan, again, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, have you on as a guest, consider you a friend. You're a real, uh, stand up guy. And I mean, I admire the life that you're living. I would have, uh, loved to do what you're doing now. It's, uh, and I, it takes a lot of balls. I, I, I oh, want yeah. to, you know, to do what you're doing. You gotta, you gotta have, uh, you gotta have killionis as they say, you know? And, uh, but when you're, uh, sitting when you get your grandson on your lap when you're 80 years old and he asks you to tell some stories you've got some really good stories to tell oh, yeah, him that's for sure thank you for having me again guys Very nice any, any other final words jonathan you want to plug anything or no i think we covered it all i think uh, let's leave it for our next uh, conversation all right great so on behalf of police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host bill cannon and my co-host phil grimaldi Thank you guys for watching and have a great night. Thanks, Stay guys. safe, everyone. One episode, just